It is, uh, as I said, it's good to be back together so that we can look into the Word of God uh, together. How privileged we are as a people to have a whole bunch of these. If you don't have a Bible on you, there's a couple that, or there's some that are scattered in the chairs in front of you there. Uh, just reach down and grab one of those. Uh, today our passage is, for those of you that may not be familiar with a Bible, uh, if you're going to use one in front of you, it's on page 869. Just turn there, you can find it, and that'll be our, uh, our text for today. For the rest of us that have our own Bibles and maybe are a little more familiar, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. So go ahead and turn to Acts 15, and I want to pray one more time. Father, we are uh, thankful for the time to be together. We're thankful for this facility. We're thankful for the Word of God. We're thankful for the fellowship that we can enjoy with one another. We're thankful for the technology that even those that are afar or um, unable to make it here this morning, Lord, that they can join in and hear uh, your word for your people in this fellowship. And Lord, we do pray that you would bless our time together. Lord, that the word of God, the living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword word of God, would do its work within each one of us here today. And Father, that you might take for many of us a familiar passage and you'd give us an insight into it that perhaps we haven't um, clung on to for a while. And Father, that the wonder of the work of Christ on the cross would fill every one of our hearts in a fresh way or maybe even a new way this morning. And so give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, uh, we are in Acts chapter 15. So we're, we're getting close to about halfway through this particular book. And today we're going to look at something that has, been com that has become known as the Council of Jerusalem, or to say it a different way, the Jerusalem Council. Maybe you have one of those Bibles that has headings at the top of it. You may see something to that effect, the Jerusalem Council. Now, the Jerusalem Council was a gathering of church leaders, which included the apostles and even some other individuals, but it was a gathering of church leaders, obviously, in the city of Jerusalem, and hence it gets its name. And its purpose was to address whether Gentiles could be saved without first becoming Jews. That's a pretty important meeting, isn't it? Gathering. When you consider today, 2% of the world's population is Jewish, and in that day, maybe it was similar, I'm not exactly sure, but when you consider the vast majority of people in the world were not Jewish, they were Gentiles by descent, that's a pretty important question to ask whether or not a Gentile can be saved without having to become a Jew first. And so this Jerusalem Council is going to become a very important meeting, and it's a very important passage of our scriptures, and I'm glad we have the opportunity this morning to consider. Let me give you a little bit of background, a little context. The year is about 50 A.D., Jesus died somewhere around the year 30 A.D. So we're talking 17, 18, 19, maybe 20 years from the days, uh, from the ends, the stories that we have at the end of the Gospels and the beginning pages of the book of Acts is where we are now in the year, again, as I said, about the year 50. As we've been looking in our study of the book of Acts, we have seen that the Gospel has sort of in those ripples, those waves, gone increasingly further and further and further outside of the city of Jerusalem. To borrow the Lord's words, it went first, it was in Jerusalem, and then it went to Judea, then it went to Samaria, and eventually it made its way even to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And that expansion certainly is wonderful as we've been looking at it and seeing what God is doing as the gospel is going forth with a band of merry men, uneducated, untrained, but they had been with Jesus. And they took that message and they had gone forth and they told it to someone and that person responded and he or she told it to someone and they responded and the gospel went forth, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's great, but as we're going to see today, it brought with it some potential problems as well. Now you remember, in the days of Jesus, the Christian faith was primarily a Jewish faith. It was, if you will, a Jewish sect. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, there were people like the Essenes that lived out in the wilderness, and then there was that sect, the Christians. That's how many people saw the Christian faith, as just one group of the Jewish faith. This was the group that believed that the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, had finally come. And so, in many ways, Christianity, or the Christian faith, was a Jewish faith. There were some Gentiles that believed, but the vast majority of people that Jesus himself even ministered to were Jews. And it continued that way in the earliest pages of the book of Acts for about 10 years or so. It's about six or seven chapters in our Bibles, but the timing was about 10 years or so. And so that the the Christians, people like Peter and others, they would go out, minister, and then they come back to Jerusalem because that was the headquarter of things. And then they'd go out and they'd talk to some more people, but then they'd quickly make their way back to the city of Jerusalem. We saw that they reached out to the Samaritans. That's good, right? We're reaching outside. We're going to reach some others. But again, who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans were considered half Jews. There's still that connection to the Jews. Half, uh, they called them half-breeds, which is kind of a rude term to use, but they're expanding a little bit outward. We see in uh, Acts chapter 11 the call on Peter to go and talk to Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion. That's a Gentile, a Roman. And God called Peter to go there. We saw that whole story. It was interesting. And yet, when you look at Cornelius, who was Cornelius? What was Cornelius? Cornelius was a Gentile, yes, but he was a God-fearer. That is, he was one who recognized that there, he hadn't gone all the way over to becoming a Jew, but he recognized the value of the Jewish faith and Jehovah of the Jews. We saw where the Jews sought to reach out to the Hellenists. Well, who were the Hellenists? The Hellenists were Greek Jews. I contrasted them with Jewish Jews. There were Jewish Jews, there were Greek Jews. That's who the Hellenists were. But still, you have that word Jew there. And so very early on in the Christian faith, first decade or so, it all comes back to, well, we're Jews, well, we're Jews, well, we're Jews, even though we are Christians, that is, those that recognize that the Christ has come. All of that begins to change in Acts chapter 13. I'm going to ask a question. I hope we know the answer. Acts chapter 13 and 14 covers what period of church history? The first missionary Okay, we did that for 10 weeks, friends. All right, so we need to know that particular one here. It's the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And remember, when, when Paul would go into a particular community, he would first look around for a synagogue, talk to those particular folks, and then he would do street ministry from the rest of the time on. In some places, there was no synagogue. And so essentially, he would just do street ministry the entire time on. The street ministry was among Gentiles. 
there was a change in the focus of the Apostle Paul's ministry. The Apostle Paul would later go on to become called the Apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul, during that journey, would go and minister to Gentiles, and if it was just Gentiles in front of him, make no mention, really, of the Old Testament. He would preach of the, you know, the God of creation and things like that, so I guess technically that's Old Testament. But he wouldn't go into all the Old Testament stories because he was preaching to a Gentile community. He would cut to the chase, so to speak, and he would preach about Jesus Christ. Now, it is this that causes the problem we're going to read about today in Acts chapter 15. There was a great divide that had moved into the Christian church. Can a person become a Christian without first having to become a Jew? You might say, of course. They didn't say it, of course. And it led to quite a debate. And so I've given you enough time to look. Find Acts chapter 15. It says this. Verse 1. But some men came down from Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Underline that word there, if you do that, cannot. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and then Samaria and on the way, they described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. Now, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they, de and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Well, that might cause some Gentiles to rethink the decision of becoming a Christian. I didn't know that that was part of the requirement. I'm, I'm no longer interested. And so uh, we, we have sort of that little bit of a background here. Look back just a couple of verses into the previous chapter, chapter 14. When the missionary journey ended of Paul and Barnabas, it says this, that they returned to their sending church. Their sending church was in Syria, um, it was called Syrian Antioch, and it says this, Now when they arrived and they gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And then it says in verse 28, And they remained no little time with the disciples. We're not told exactly how long they were there in Antioch, kind of debriefing and kind of settling back in and resting from this three-year journey. No doubt they began to again, again to teach the people as they had done before they had left and all of that. We can make some estimate that it was about a year or so before the, the events that we read here beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15. And so again, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, And some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. And we see the message they taught was, unless... Uh, these Gentiles are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this is not a minor issue. This isn't one of those things you can look at, okay, you like to have loud music, I like it to be more subdued, or you like to get dressed up for church, I like to be a little more comfortable. This isn't one of those kinds of issues. Again, look at the last couple of words of verse 1. You cannot be saved. 
This is a salvation issue that these people came to the city of Antioch to deal with. Essentially saying that the ministry of Paul and Barnabas was wrong. In some regards, it was a violation of the scriptures. This is what they're saying. You're going out and you're preaching a false message to those Gentiles. The true message, they would say, is that these people have to become Jews first. Again, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so again, this is not a matter of your preference versus my preference on one of these issues. This is a doctrinal issue. This is an issue that goes to the core of what it means to be a Christian and the core of the Christian faith. And so this is an issue that has to be resolved. It says these men of Judah, they came with this message. These men of Judah are oftentimes referred to, not all men of Judah, these men of Judah, are oftentimes referred to as Judaizers. Some versions of our Bible use that term, but certainly it's a term which comes up in in writings about this. They were referred to as Judaizers. Jewish Christians who believed that Gentiles could also become Christians, but only first after becoming a Jew which meant they would have to submit to all the Jewish rituals, and particularly the big one, it meant that they would have to submit to circumcision. And so for these Judaizers, it was not enough for them that a person should believe on the Lord Jesus, but they had to believe on Jesus and submit to the law of Moses. And of course, I I hope we all understand that here, and if we don't, this is what I'm going to try and really drive home today. I hope we all understand that that is an attack on the gospel of the grace of God. Because the gospel of the grace of God teaches that by faith alone in the work of Jesus on the cross, a man can be saved. So what these Judaizers are doing is attempting to add something to the finished work of uh, Christ on the cross. So they would say, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus. And you would, if you're a Christian, you would say, I agree with that. And so on that, we agree with one another. Where, we go, where they go askew is they would add something to it. So they're saying that a person must trust in the work of Christ on the cross and be circumcised. That's not the true gospel. The true gospel teaches that Christ finished the work necessary for salvation on the cross. And that all that you and I, any one of us, any person you go to anywhere in the world, all that a person needs to do is put their faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's the true gospel. Remember the word gospel means good news. That's the good news. The moment human merit enters in, the moment that works or introduced in any way, well, then it's no longer grace. And it's no longer by grace that we are saved but rather it's as a result, even if it's just a little bit, it's as a result of something that you and I have done. And that's no longer salvation by grace. That's salvation as a reward for something that you and I have done. I'll remind you of this phrase. I've used it years ago, and it's this. Anything plus the gospel negates the gospel. If you add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ that has to be done as well, you negate the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's no longer by grace, but now even a little, it is by works. And these Judaizers were saying you have to add the Jewish faith to your belief. 
Now, in our day, there are not a lot of people pushing the law of Moses upon would-be converts. There actually are some. Some of us here have had experience with some folks that do that. Essentially, you have to become a messianic Jew and live like a Jew in order to be saved. And so there are some that are still out there that kind of push that message. I think in our day, we're more likely to encounter something like this. You need to trust in the work of Christ and be baptized or you cannot be saved. Or you need to trust in the work of Christ and join a specific church or you cannot be saved. Or you need to trust in the work of Christ and receive the sacraments or whatever it may be. And people are adding to the gospel. But again, I remind you of this. Anything plus the gospel negates the gospel. And that's why this statement, this accusation on the part of these men of Judah, that's why Paul and Barnabas respond so significantly to it. That's why they feel it has to be dealt with. Is it possible these men of Judah came with good motives? I think it is. I think they were concerned about, you know, maintaining the purity of what they believed that, you know, was presented to them in the faith and all that kind of stuff. And perhaps they were sincere, sincerely trying to guard the truth. But as we're going to see today, as Paul's going to make very clear in the others, they were sincerely wrong in their understanding of things. And so they had to be dealt with. It reminds me a little bit of, um, remember that game you used to play, Whisper Down the Lane? And, you know, this guy starts over here talking about this particular thing, and by the time it gets over there, it's a completely different message here. Well, I think that's what's going on in this situation. Paul is looking at this and saying, we're slightly askew, maybe just a degree, but we're askew. And if we don't uh, deal with this, 10 years after the faith came out, so to speak, we're going to be you know, completely lost as things go. And so Paul very strongly is going to deal with it. And so we see in verse 2, it's going to tell us that. One second, please. It says, now after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension. So no small dissension means a big dissension. All right, there was an argument. It was a fight. I don't know if they threw down or anything like that, but, you know, we, they talked about it and it got ugly a little. No small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this particular question. Paul and Barnabas here exemplify for us one of the most re important responsibilities of a pastor of a local body of believers or a spiritual leader of a group of believers. And that is this, that they are confronting those that are promoting false doctrine. Because false doctrine can spread, and false doctrine can infiltrate a body of believers, and it can lead people astray. And Paul and Barnabas are the ones that are going to have to give an account for that someday. And so Paul and Barnabas, it, like I can see a lot of us responding this way. Okay, thanks so much for sharing your message. Now get out of it and go home. And just sort of let them go, and you know, the, I trust the people will, they'll see the truth and they'll know. But Paul and Barnabas read, no, this needs to be dealt with here and anywhere these men are going to go. And so Paul and Barnabas, they have a debate. They have no small dissension with them. And eventually, they're going to make their way all the way down to Jerusalem, as we see, verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they went through Phoenicia and Samaria. They described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles 
and they brought great joy to all the believers, all the brothers. You can imagine, as they're traveling, they have to go through Phoenicia, they have to go through Samaria, and they're checking in with local churches and fellowshipping with them. And, you know, so what brings you through this area? Where are you headed? Well, we're going down to Jerusalem. Well, why are you going down there? And they began to explain the whole scenario of how they were out on the field and how they had ministered to Gentiles, and many people were coming to know the Lord. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, but then some people came and said it wasn't right, and, and so on and so forth. And so they're just relaying these things here. But the people are rejoicing that the Gentiles are coming to the faith. It brought great joy. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders so that they declared to them all that the Lord had done. There's almost a contrast here between the men of Judea who were sort of like, well, we don't like what's going on and you need to change it and do it this particular way. And the people of Phoenicia and Samaria, they're like, that's unbelievable. And the great joy that is filling them. Paul and Barnabas. Verse 4 says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And notice it says they gave their a report. That's what Luke tells us. Now, an interesting thing here as we study, and we've seen this a few times in the book of Acts, many times the epistles, which are the letters that are written uh, in the latter portion of, of our New Testament, those epistles shed light on some of the accounts that we have in the book of Acts. Here we have another example of it. So Luke tells us about a public gathering, meeting, in which Paul and Barnabas presented sort of their, their case. And he tells us there that they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. What Luke doesn't tell us is that there was also a private meeting that took place before between Paul and the apostles and perhaps some of the elders, but not the entire congregation of people. For that private interaction, we have to look to Galatians chapter 2. And so if you would, let's all turn there to Galatians 2. It's going to be to your right, about four books over. If you have one of the, those Bibles in your, in your chair there, it's page 913. The author of the book of Galatians is the Apostle Paul. And so the Apostle Paul is recounting some more of the interaction that Luke has left out. That doesn't mean one was lying and one, you know, was mistaken or anything like that. Luke just told a portion of the story. He told the portion of the public meeting. In Galatians chapter 2, we are given sort of a more full picture of all that went on down there in Jerusalem. And so if you look at the first verse of Galatians, he says, After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. If scroll, scroll down to verse 4 for a second. There, Paul tells us the reason why he felt the need to go to that particular meeting. The reason why, instead of just saying, well, you people believe what you want, we're going to believe what we want here. The reason why he felt he had to go down there, he says, this matter arose because there were some false believers that had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ and to make us slaves. Okay, so Paul gives you the reason why he felt it was so important uh, to go down there. And we also learn again in verse 1 
that he brought with him this fellow Titus. Luke never mentions that in the book of Acts. That's important information for us. We know a good deal about Titus. There's a book of our Bibles of a letter that was written by Paul to this fellow Titus. What we know about Titus is this, is that he was a young uh, protege of the Apostle Paul, a disciple of the Apostle Paul, probably about half of the Apostle Paul's age. We learn that. We learn that he was a Gentile convert, that the Apostle Paul was mentoring in the faith. If you look at the Galatians passage, look at verse 3. It says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And so we see that he was a Gentile convert who Paul wasn't going to make become a Jew in order to be a Christian. And so it seems as if Paul brings Titus with him down to Jerusalem as sort of an exhibit. I wonder if he had Titus. Titus, share your faith. Share your testimony of how you came to the faith. And Titus, you know, shares that. No mention of, and then I started going to synagogue, and boy, that day I had to get, no mention of those things. Just mention of a Gentile man discovering that Jesus is the Messiah who came to save the world, and now he's a man that is walking with Jesus Christ. He comes down here. Paul brings him almost as an example. So that's something we learn in the Galatians retelling that we don't see in the Acts telling. The second new thing that we learn is going to be found in verse 2, and that reads this way. This is Galatians chapter 2, verse 2. It says, I went in response to a revelation and a meeting privately, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. All right, so remember, Luke jumps right in and talks about the public meeting of the entire church, including the apostles and elders. Here in Galatians, Paul is talking about the private meeting. And he says in that private meeting, he ran his gospel by, his message by the leaders. He says, look, this is what I, I went to, this city, this city, this city. Here's all the cities that I went to. This is the message I preached to them. And they listened to it. And essentially, they said, yeah, that's good. That's a good message. It's the gospel. Paul says there, I wanted to be sure I was not mistaken. I wanted to be sure I wasn't running in vain and going out and, you know, not preaching what it was I was supposed to be preaching. In humility, he says that statement here. But again, what we learn in verse 2 is that there was this private meeting with the leaders. Luke doesn't tell us about that in the Acts passage. He only tells us about the public meeting. What we also learn from Paul's account is that before that public meeting, perhaps at that initial private meeting or a different private meeting, that things got uh, a little testy, even with some of the leaders, some of the elders, some of the apostles. And so if you look at the Galatians passage, look down at verse 11. There it says this. But when Cephas, now Cephas is another name for Peter. Most of us know him much better by that name. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, 
so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw the, uh, the truth, excuse me, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, well then how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So what we learn in this Galatians passage is even before Paul made his way down to Jerusalem, that Peter was up in Antioch, that apparently he was part of, or he came just before the certain men of Judah that Luke calls them, and that Paul and he had a confrontation, a face-to-face confrontation about the way that Peter was acting, and that Peter was essentially siding with the circumcision party, with the Judaizers, and acting the hypocrite. We also learn that even Barnabas, Paul's partner, was sort of being kind of led over to that line of thinking. What's my point in all this? What in telling you all these things? This is a big deal. The church is being, the leadership even, is being divided over this issue. Can a man, can a woman be saved, a Gentile, be saved without first having to become a Jew? It's a highly climatic moment in the life of the early church. Only 15, 20 years after the days that Jesus sort of birthed the church. And we thank the Lord that Paul stood his ground. Because had Paul not stood his ground, and had they sort of allowed these, yeah, you know, yeah, sure, you should, these sort of followed these Jewish ways of thinking, well, in a human sense, the gospel was at risk of being lost. This is a very important issue. And so... Paul gets into an argument with Peter. Now, as we'll, we'll see, as we'll keep reading, we rejoice in the fact that Peter was willing to be persuaded, as was a fellow by the name of James, which we'll see as well. But there were still some that were holding on. No, I'll never change. So if we go back to the Acts passage, turn back there, please. Thank you for your patience with me. The Acts 15 passage. I'll pick up again, starting in... Well, we already read verse 4. I'll pick up in verse 6. It says, Now the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And that's saying something. Because it's not like, no, that's dumb. We don't even need to have a meeting. They said, we should get together. We should talk about this thing. And as we're going to learn in verse 7, much debate ensued once again. But finally, after much debate, Peter is going to stand up. Look at verse 7. He's going to address the congregation, the group there. It says, now after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Therefore, verse 10, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of these Gentile disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, does that sound like the Peter from Galatians 2? Not at all. 
But Peter was willing to be persuaded. Peter was willing to be changed. I think sometimes we, we're going to dig in, even though we know we're wrong, just so we don't have to admit that we're wrong. Men, I think we do that from time to time, and we should stop. <laughs> Peter is an example of a person who realized, you know what, I, I was wrong. And he stands up here at this meeting and he basically puts that out there and he shares of an event in his life. We've already read about it, but he shares of that event, I forget, Acts chapter 10, when he was up on the roof and he was praying and the, the picnic basket or um, blanket comes down and has all the unclean and clean animals that are there and the voice from heaven says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, oh, it's a test. Never I've never had anything unclean. And God says to him, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And the picnic basket goes, blanket goes away, comes back down again. Same exact scenario. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Never. All right, goes back up, comes back down three times. And then that's it. That's the end of the vision. The vision. Three times, though, he is told, don't call unclean what I have called clean. As we read in that Acts 10 passage, it seems like, I wonder what that was about. Peter's trying, like figuring it all out, and he soon discovers what it was all about as there are some Gentile men that come to the door of the house that he is staying and saying that God sent us here to find a guy named Peter to come with us back to the Gentile community in which we live so that you can speak to our Gentile leader, this fellow by the name of Cornelius. And Peter says, look, normally I wouldn't go with you. I'm paraphrasing. Normally I wouldn't go with you, but God has shown me not to call anything unclean that he is called clean. Let's go. Let's head out. And they head out and they go. And Peter went into that Gentile home, preached a message to a room full of Gentile people. And as Peter retells us in this account, the Holy Spirit fell on those Gentiles. And they believed. And Peter says it was the same thing that happened to all of us on Pentecost when we were gathered in that room back in Jerusalem. This is Acts 10. Let me read it. He fell. I already read that part. Uh, but Peter says, by no means, I already read that part. Let's move on. So according now to the Acts 10 passage, Peter's just making it clear. Who am I to stop what God is doing? These people obviously believe. God poured out a spirit on them as he poured out his spirit on us. You believe, don't you? And so who am I to stand in the way of what God has been doing? He gives an example from personal experience. And these are the closing words. This is Acts chapter 10, verse 43. He said, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone that believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Notice, Peter, no mention of baptism, no mention of circumcision, no mention of keeping the law of Moses, no mention of joining a particular congregation, no mention of any of those things. Just simply, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Which is exactly what the Lord confirmed, that that's what these Gentiles in that little room did. They believed in Christ, and God confirmed it by pouring out his Holy Spirit. So you go back to the Acts 15 passage, that's what Peter is saying. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, 
bore witness to their faith, to them, by giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he gave him to each of us. That's Peter's first point. If God received these Gentiles as believers, well then shouldn't that be pretty much the end of the argument Peter is saying? That's the first point that he makes. He's not done. He'll make two additional points, both of which are in verse 10. So look at 15.10. Now therefore, he says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, that's the Gentiles, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to keep? So points number two and three. Point number two is why are you putting God to the test? Now that's a phrase that is used often in the Old Testament, and it refers to refusing to follow God's leading or guidance. And a lot of times the prophets would say that in the Old Testament. Why are you putting God to the test in this way? We see that a lot with Moses and the men and the women that he was leading out of slavery. And so Peter's point is this. Look, God is making it pretty clear how he feels about the Gentiles. Why are each of us not jumping on board with his leading? Why are we withstanding the Lord? Why are people actually saying and we're debating whether or not Gentiles could actually be saved or not? That's Peter's second point there. And then the third point that he's going to make, which is the second point of verse 10, he says, why would we ever put a yoke, you know, a yoke sort of that, uh, that binding on a person, why would we ever put that upon a person that we ourselves could never keep? Referring to the Jews. Peter says, you're requiring them to do something that none of us have been able to do. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Right, friends? Does that make any sense? Uh, of course not. And so Peter makes three arguments in about five verses there. Then you look at verse 11. He wraps it all up. Kind of Peter gives his official opinion. He says this, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will be saved. Now there's something very sweet about the way Peter says that. He says, we believe that we will be saved just as they will be saved. I think it's sweet because we might expect Peter to have said, as a Jew, that the Gentiles can be saved just like we are. But rather he says it the completely opposite way. We believe that we can be saved just like they are. And again, it's by grace. God is saving the Gentiles by grace, and thank the Lord, he is saving the Jews by grace, and he is saving every one of us by grace as well. Again, compare this with Galatians 2 and the face-to-face -face fight argument that Paul and Peter had. And what we see here is that God has gotten a hold of Peter's heart. And he changed his thinking on this matter. Verse 12, it says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they, then they listened to Barnabas and Paul. All right, so the scenario, Peter... He concludes in verse 11, and he sits down, and, and nobody says, yeah, but what about? Everyone just sort of sits there, like, man, he made some good points. Then Paul and Barnabas stand up, and notice it says, and they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Basically, they do the exact same thing Peter did. So Peter shared of his interaction with some Gentiles in the city of Caesarea, primarily with Cornelius the centurion. Now Paul and Barnabas share some of their examples 
of the interactions that they had had with Gentiles on that missionary journey. And in the same way that the Holy Spirit was poured out to confirm Peter's message in Caesarea, they basically say the same thing, how God confirmed his work among the Gentiles with signs and wonders all along the way on that missionary journey. So their argument is the same as Peter's argument. Look, God is working amongst the Gentiles. And who are we to stand in the way of what he is doing? Now the council continues. Look at verse 13. A fourth man stands up. This is James. And he addresses the assembly. And so beginning in verse 13, it says, Now after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, now... That's another name for Peter, all right? So he's Peter, he's Cephas, and he's Simeon, and sometimes he's Simon. Um, I don't know why. He, he had a lot of names. But it says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David, that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, notice, this is the prophet, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so a fellow by the name of James stands up. Now this isn't the James that we read about a lot in the Gospels, the brother of John, uh, that particular James, the Apostle James, had been martyred for the faith. We read about that in Acts chapter 12. This particular James is almost certainly the brother of Jesus, who during Jesus' earthly ministry didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Thought he was crazy, actually. Tried to bring him home in a white straitjacket. Is that what they call it? Straitjacket? Um, would you know? I don't know. <laughs> uh, thought he was crazy. And we can understand why. But after the resurrection, we learned that Jesus sat with his brother, maybe all the brothers and sisters that he had, and kind of explained things more fully to them. And this particular James came to believe. And he, he became a, a leader in this church here. That, that becomes obvious, some of the words that are used there. At the very least, he's an influencer. And so he stands up after Peter, after Paul, after Barnabas. He stands up. And he does something that is really, really good and really, really wise. Because Peter shared, well, this has been my experience, and that's cool. And Paul and Barnabas essentially did the same thing. But notice what James does. James points to the scripture. And he says, the, the experiences that you just heard from these folks here, they line up with the scripture. And the place that he points them to is the prophet Amos. You can read that on your own someday. It's chapter 9 of that particular book. And as it's quoted in the book of Acts, notice how it very clearly says and speaks of all the Gentiles who are called by my name. And so that prophet, speaking of a future day to him, is revealing the fact that there are going to be Gentiles, all the Gentiles, many Gentiles that are going to be called by God's name and he doesn't call them proselytes. He doesn't call them former Gentiles. He calls them Gentiles. James is, in effect, saying this. He's saying, men, brethren, people in this congregation, God has spoken 
on this matter. He said he would save the Gentiles, and now we're hearing the reports that he has saved the Gentiles. And so he says, as we look at verse 19, he kind of, based on all that information, he says, so this is my conclusion. He says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read uh, every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so James now, he stands up, and, and the wording in the Greek is like he gives the official ruling, essentially. So he seems like he is a leader there in that church. And he stands up, he says, look, we heard all these things. This is what the scripture says. It's become obvious that the Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to become Christians. And so we're going to write a letter to them explaining that and giving them these four things that we would like them to, to not do or to do, depending on uh, the way that it is approached there. And when we come back together next week, we will dig into that a little bit further. Amen. Who's excited? Who, who wishes it was next week already? Uh, she does. All right. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that great truth. That there's nothing that we need to do to add to the work that you have done. Lord, that the scripture is very clear that our sin separates us from a holy God and that the wages of our sin is death and that Jesus Christ came and paid the penalty for our sin and that by faith in his work on the cross that any man or woman or, woman or young person can be saved, can have their sins forgiven can be brought into right relationship with you. Not as a result of works, lest any one of us would start to boast in our own goodness. And so, Father, as uh, we're halfway through this particular council, I pray that the reality and the wonder of the gospel of Christ and the goodness of the grace of God would enlarge every one of our hearts. Those of us that have believed for a number of years, and, and maybe those of us who don't, do not yet believe, Lord, would you open up our hearts to do so even this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.